All right, welcome back, Crossing Broadcast. I am your host, Kyle Scott, joined, as always, by Russell Joy. Russ, what's up? Hello, Kyle. Hello, everyone. We we are sans Adam because he is travel. Where is Adam today? Adam is is uh, is in L.A. He told us the ah, reason right. that he's there. I don't know if we're supposed to say it, so I guess we won't. But That's he is right. he is doing something for. <clears throat> Prepare your coffees, your orange juices, waters, or anything else that you are sipping on this morning. He is out with Bleacher Report, and I believe <sighs> he is doing uh, doing some work out there in, in L.A. for them. I, I tell you, Adam, I think, goes to California more than anyone else I've ever met in my life. I've never been. Uh, the first time that he, he did it was, like I think, back in April or something, and I was a little bit jealous. And at this point... I've just become so indifferent to his stories of going out to California. I think jealousy has now subsided, and now I'm just accepting my uh, my long term role here as a uh, as an eastern southeastern PA guy. And I, I believe will... he's been to California four times since we've started recording the podcast in I guess April. Yeah, wow. that's a lot for a guy who lives in New York. And he said it's a day trip. I think he's doing a day trip to California. But uh, it's like it's that, and he's he goes he's been down the shore a bunch. I mean, good for him. You well, know, that's... this is this is life without without kids. I guess. Yeah. Well, it's... the shore is different if you got a place to go to on the weekend. But the yeah, he's he's all over the place. Uh, and next week, I think he'll be in Texas. So uh, this is probably a good time to tell people we will most likely be taking the week off next week. Um, I will actually be down the shore all week uh, on in a rental, and I don't know what the Wi-Fi and or recording situation will be like, and Adam will is out Wednesday and Friday because he'll be at a bachelor party in Texas, so uh, Russ, you, you could just like take the mic and talk for 45 minutes. Um, yeah, I think we'll that, our, that our would first be off a... Week. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Let's, uh, let's get some feedback on Twitter. Who wants to listen to Russ riff about... Probably soccer and soccer. Uh, other and other weird stuff. And a reaction. I'm not going to spoil anything. For those of you who are Game of Thrones fans, I'm going to warn you right now. If you didn't see it late last night, HBO in Spain accidentally uh, aired the sixth episode of this season, like way early. It was supposed to be an episode five re-airing. They messed it up. They they aired episode six. There are spoilers everywhere, including. Um, don't give it. Don't say. No, anything. I'm not. Just I'm tell not. People no, I'm just. I'm just. I'm just. Saying, well, it's internet. not. It's not. That there's just spoilers. Avoid anything that has a picture or a video because the biggest moments of that that episode. If anybody had read the leaks that came out in October, the biggest moments of those episodes, possibly of the entire season, have been leaked everywhere on Twitter. So be very, very careful. There are the uh, the Twitter is dark and full of spoilers. What are you a masochist? Like, do you read leaks for shows that you watch? Like were you were you that guy who would like go like watch like try and find out what happened in Star Wars and like spend days in the message boards trying to piece together the ending of the new movie before it came out? No, but see here's what's here here's what happened. At the end of season five, I Dude, was like, you know I was like I was like, you know what, I'm not going to I'm not gonna read any leaks. I don't wanna see any of the, the pictures from like Watchers on the Wall or any of those kind of sites. And what ends up happening is you know, my wife and I had started reading the books. I think she's a full book ahead of me. We don't have time now because we're chasing two kids around. But like, you start to you start to find out about certain theories of what people think are going to happen in the books versus the show because it's so different now. And you start watching different YouTube channels and people breaking stuff down. And then it just so happens that sometimes 
you'll run across a picture and you go, oh man, like these characters, you know, finally showed up on screen together and you're like really excited. Um, and then you start realizing, no, that might be a really big reveal for the season. It's kind of like how you don't like when people say, oh, that character is still there because it, it ruins the moments that you think somebody might die or something cool might happen. It's like that. And then pretty soon, like the leaks came out, I think in October and everybody was so skeptical about him that it was like, all right, let's read it and see what happens. And the, the problem is that the, the leak from October has been like 98% accurate. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's a shame. And it's weird to me that HBO is so unable to prevent the scripts from leaking, pages of scripts from leaking, which has been a bigger thing this past week. And that like, how does HBO in Spain already have access to episode six? Like, I think if, if I'm HBO at this point, I'm I'm not giving anybody anything. Nobody can have nice things until it has to go to air. I mean, well, this yeah, it, but, it I mean, is they one have of... to have. Hold on, they have to have some sort of copy of the show to to pl- play when it actually comes time. Like there has to be a copy that they have. They don't give it to them an hour before and they're like, here you go, upload it and hit play. No, no, but it's it's a full it's a full week early. Oh yeah, it's a goof up, but yeah, I don't know, and they probably have. You probably got to get that stuff ready. I mean, I'm always amazed at so good, like so good, like 24 seven, and how they HBO tweeted out a picture last whatever night it airs Thursdays. I don't know, um, like three hours before air. I remember this was a big thing when the Flyers and Rangers were in it, and they would basically be editing it up until like 30 minutes before it was time to go live, and it said, "Here we are putting the finishing touches on the show that's going out to a national audience in just an hour." It's kind of, it's kind of crazy like that. I would be so paranoid that like you screwed something up once you mix it down and stuff. But uh, yeah, I don't know how you read those spoilers and leaks. I just want to drive me nuts. I just want to, you know, when it's just you and I, this show usually gets a little bit weird and we get really off the rails. So I want to go off the rails. We didn't talk about this this conversation, but I. I want to transition since you brought up 24-7. I, I dropped this in Slack a while ago, and I don't think we talked about it the other day. This will give us something to, to talk about for a minute. Um, I think it might have been on a test show, or it might have been in early April. We had talked about the desire for local teams to do things that are more along the lines of what HBO does with like the, the Winter Classic 24-7 series with some of the buildup they do for boxing matches and hard knocks. And I think back then we were talking about, I think you and I were kind of on the side of we wanted to see more local stuff. Adam was like a little bit more on the fence with it. Um, After watching, I watched the first episode of Hard Knocks late. Uh, It was like two days ago I watched it. And all I could think is how much I would love to see local teams, even, even if they had to do it themselves, using their social media teams, using, you know, their, their film crews, almost do their own version of what Hard Knocks looks like or do their own version of what, you know, the Winter Classic 24-7 buildup looks like, even if it's well, here's for... here's the thing. They do. This, the Eagles do this. They have a show on their um, website that does this. And I know the... I guess the, fly, the Flyers did it or tried a few episodes with Anthony Sanfilippo a few years ago when he was working for them. So here's the thing. I agree with you. I think sports and I think the sports leagues, especially baseball and hockey has been pretty good about giving access with Pierre on the benches in games. Hockey gets that they need to be a little more creative than the other sports. Football doesn't need to do that. Basketball doesn't need to do that. But I think 
all of the leagues have come around. Like you have cameras in the huddle. Um, you could usually hear coaches mic'd up. There was a 30 for 30 about the XFL a few months ago. And yep. it talked about how that league really pioneered a lot of the camera tactics we see. Certainly the, um, uh, the name is escaping me, the hovering camera for Sunday Night Football. Like Skycam? Sky Skycam, thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, that was pretty much an XFL implementation. There's other things from that league that sports teams and leagues and, and networks have picked up on because they were good. And I think we need to go further because it's such an open – it's such an open society now, and you have NBA players tweeting their workouts and Instagram video of this and that, and I feel like if leagues are smart and want to continue appealing to younger people, especially ones that have a problem with that, like baseball, they really need to give unprecedented access. Like it need, Access needs to be a part of your product, and the problem is players and teams and coaches, and especially the old school ones, are not going to like it because they are all about the sport. Bill Belichick is all about the sport. Chase Utley is all like, has famously said he would prefer to just play in an empty stadium. Like players might, and coaches might not like that sort of thing, but they have to realize that their their massive salaries are paid for by by the because this is a marketable product. And we've talked about the TV deals and stuff and question marks for the future. A way to really keep people engaged and wherever those games are broadcast is to give incredible access. So I agree with you. And I think the problem is to doing like a 24-7 type thing. When the teams do it, they could get really good access. Like the Eagles show tends to be pretty good. The problem is... First of all, super talented people, the be arguably the best in the field, work at HBO. So in terms of production value and editing and storytelling, they're really good at that sort of thing. That usually makes the show more compelling. Like Amazon has done a nice job with All or Nothing, but I know when Showtime has tried something similar, I think they did something for hockey or they followed one team and it like, couldn't hold a candle to 24-7. So that's one. Like It's just talented editors and producers. When teams do it, they could do a good job and get more access than anybody, but they're only going to show you the stuff they want to show you, which is their right. Like they're not going to show you the truly controversial stuff or the really down moments or or that sort of thing or where they're cutting players. Like that's just not a good look for them. And the local networks, I've actually had discussions with people in the sphere of Comcast about this sort of thing because you know they have access to all these teams and they love the concept of it and they push for it as much as possible but the teams also push back pretty hard like they're like hey we have cameras in these spots like let us give us access give us the locker room give us the tunnel and the teams are like well hold on you know like you're our broadcast partners and we don't maybe want you seeing some things and airing those things so it's a i agree with you but i think it's a delicate balance and i would argue the teams and leagues need to just get on board with like it should be the NBA does a, has come the closest to this, where they make it like a reality show. That guy steps off the bus, there's a camera in his face, and and it pretty much goes until the end of the game. I think sports leagues need to make it like WWE, like Big Brother, like the real world. Like the minute that guy arrives at the arena, you are part of a reality show, and the game is obviously paramount. But you should expect that there everywhere but the actual locker where you're getting changed 
or the showers, you could expect that there's a camera and a microphone. And I think that would make for such a more compelling product. Like, make it like WWE. You don't need to create storylines, but give the producers, you know, give Fred Goodelli of Sunday Night Football, you know, so the, the conversation between uh, Eli Manning and Odell Beckham in the locker room, like during the pregame show, rather than Bob Costas sitting there reading a poem. So what would you rather... All right, let me let me give you a toss-up. Every team in the city ends up doing one of these. They have great production value. And you have to pick between one of two things. You get to have a season of this Sixers team, which has probably some of the most dynamic personalities and is maybe like the most entertaining team in the city in terms of being a youth movement and, and trying to take on Goliath this year. You can watch that team for an entire year, or you can have a season of the Eagles, hard knock style, but it but it definitively proves that Doug Peterson has no idea what he's doing. Which would you rather have? The fun up the fun season with the Sixers, or finally having concrete vindication that Doug Peterson is clueless? Um now that's I, a good hold question. on before before you answer, yeah. I think I know what you're gonna pick. I don't want it okay. to influence what you pick, but I am I'm ninety five percent sure I know where you're gonna go with this. Alright, I will say this. Uh I think the Sixers are gonna be huge this year. Like they're gonna be the biggest team since the Phillies runs this season. I don't they're not gonna be that big, but they're gonna be the biggest team since then. So I think having access to them and with the personalities they have and with the amount of attention they're gonna be getting would would probably be would probably be the best because everyone's going to be talking about them and love this team if all these guys can stay on the damn court. That said, I I think I'd be most intrigued to see the dynamic of the front office of the Eagles from Laurie to Roseman uh, to Doug Peterson and just how, like there's been so much made of the Eagles' palace intrigue over the last 10, 10 plus years and the infighting and office politics and you know how Howie Roseman is this great mind I'm not so sure that he is and Doug Peterson certainly not so sure that he is so I might take the Eagles just because it would really be enlightening to see what the hell goes on in there that makes it such an like an odd place whereas the Sixers would just be I think like fun like fun to watch and they would be the team we would be gift like there'd be so many gifts to come out of that Whereas the Eagles, I think we would watch it and be like, "Oh my God, like Howie's an idiot." That's that's what I. So I don't. I knew a hundred percent. Six. I'll choose the Sixers though. Whoa. Okay. See. Yeah. Now that that was unexpected because I thought the cynic in you was going to uh, was going to rule out, went out. So anyway. Yeah. No. I, I think the Sixers would be fun. I, I'm I'm tired of being negative and a cynic. Like this six years. People. I said this last show. People are like, "Oh, you're so negative." I'm like, dude. I haven't blogged the winning playoff series in five plus years. Well, it's time to start writing about the Philadelphia Soul, Kyle. That, uh... yeah. No, but seriously, like it is really difficult to to get too excited about anything because even when there's stuff that looks good, I'm just so jaded now from the last five years that it's like, man, it is impossible even to expect something good to come out of this. Like that's that might be influencing my Eagles thoughts on the Jordan Matthews trade. It's like, man, like I, nothing any of these teams have done have worked out. So I'm just like defaulting to the negative at this point. Well, you know, talking about uh, the idea of being dismissive because you, you know, you've shunned the Philadelphia soul so much. 
Um, somebody else who uh, was just shunned by a team would include Ryan Matthews, who was cut yesterday by the Eagles, ending what has been a long-running saga of will they, won't they cut him. And now that he was officially cleared for practice, they kicked him to the curb yesterday. Let's have a moment of silence for Ryan Matthews and his inability to stay healthy. And the Sixers and Joel Embiid's knee. Thank you. Thank you. You also brought up um, a guy who has been a focal point of conversation in in the city. We've discussed him on this podcast. He's been discussed, I'm sure, on Sports Talk Radio. I wouldn't know all that much. I haven't listened. But Jordan Matthews, um, there was a a tweet that came out a few days ago by Ruben Frank of uh, CSN. By the way, I don't know if I ever sent this to you, and I I think I have to. I had a buddy send me... um, a picture of Reuben Frank and Anthony Gargano running track in high school. And it's, uh, oh. and it is, it is interesting. Wait, that could be like front was page this uh, public or was this, uh, no. Well, I, I think it was from Wait. a yearbook, but, so but this I had isn't it out there and you, you have this. Yeah. It is. Oh it's, man, I need this. It's incredible I because Gargano, Gargano, uh, it was either high school or college, but Gargano running track, uh, he, he definitely was, was a lot, um, how do I put this in a in a kind way? He looked more like a guy who had run track back in the day. But then I saw this this other guy running next to him. I'm like, who the heck is that? And it's like, oh my god, that's Ruben Frank. Anyway, Ruben Frank tweeted this. Uh, I think it was yesterday. He tweeted in games that that were plus or minus ten points that the Eagles had either won by ten points or lost by by ten or more points. Um, Jordan Matthews, as an Eagle, had 164 catches. 1,835 yards, 13 touchdowns. Compared to games that didn't have that big of a point differential, he had 61 catches, 838 yards, 6 touchdowns. Um, Essentially kind of pointing out the fact that, now I don't know how many games he didn't, uh, maybe this is why it's a misleading stat, maybe it isn't, how many of those games actually fit in each of those categories, but you know it is fair to point out that he had almost triple the amount of catches in those games that had a bigger point differential. More than twice of his yards came, and more than uh, more than two times as many touchdowns came in those games where you know the the game ended up being a, an Eagles win by ten or more points or an Eagles a loss by ten or more points. Elliot Shore Parks, of course, uh, the the guy who I've mentioned before. I'm not sure if he's in on the uh, the joke against him or not, but he tweeted immediately that. The uh, Jordan Matthews garbage time argument is essentially garbage and is embarrassing at this point. So I, I don't know how you so, feel about it. I don't I don't know how how much we want to get farther into Jordan Matthews. He's gone with a. All right. So yeah. let's let's just talk about it. Um, so uh, there there's continues to be this movement on Twitter, uh, and Elliot is doing his best to fan tweak like all of the Eagles guys in defense of Jordan Matthews, and I, I'm. I'm siding with Elliot here because the most of Eagles Twitter is has like we've now begun the process of whitewashing Jordan Matthews and um, smearing him and pointing out all of his negatives. And look, he's not like a, a he's not like a superstar receiver. No one's saying that. But I think I think Elliot's point and mine has been that first of all, you take this thing about the garbage time. And it's like, okay, like you really, that, that that's the sort of stat that can be super out of context because plus or minus 10 points isn't that much 
uh, a 10-point win if you score a touchdown late in the game. Like, you really have to go back and really dive into exactly what goes into that, uh, whether they were up or down, like how many opportunities he's had in plus or minus 10-point games. So that stat, without really digging into the numbers, can be super misleading. Also, my memory of Jordan Matthews is him uh, sprinting to the house in Dallas for an overtime touchdown, so let's not forget about that. Um, But I think Elliott's point, and I think mine too, is that, like, the notion... Here's here's why people were like, hey, this this was a good offseason. And we don't have, we're not going to talk about Matthews for that long. But by virtue of having Alshon Jeffrey, a legit top seven wide receiver talent when he's, when he's healthy and on the field, and then a speedy outside guy, whether that's Aguilar or Torrey Smith, just to clear space, just to get down the field, just to potentially beat a guy once or twice per game. And then you put Jordan Matthews in the slot. He's no longer the, the top receiver on the team. He's no longer potentially occasionally going up against the top corner from another team. I know usually they wouldn't move their guys to the slot for him, but I, I you know, there have been situations where he's gone against the top corner on another team. Uh, and then Zach Ertz, who again, you know, breakout year warning, but is at least a talented guy, if nothing else. So by virtue of having him and Matthews in the middle of the field, and then Jeffrey and a speedster on the other side, your whole receiving core was very well balanced and like was going to be a strength this year. And when you remove Matthews and insert Aguilar, like I saw John Barchard, and he is so over the top, over the top in favor of the trade, that he he tweeted, it was either Elliot or Andrew Porter from WIP yesterday. And he said, well, tell me what Matthews can do that Trey Burton can't. Because <laughs> he was making the argument, well, Burton could just play the slot and do the same things. Like, tell me one specific I mean, thing that Burton can. can't. We don't know. What's that? I said maybe he can. We we really well, he, don't. Oh, Jesus Christ, man. What? No, like, like, well, yes, could Trey Burton potentially, like, fill in in the slot? And he was like, give me one thing that, that Matthews can do that Burton can't. Like, Jordan Matthews is a wide receiver. Trey Burton is not as big, isn't as good of a route runner, isn't as fast. Like, he, you know, he's not as much of an athlete as a guy who's a wide receiver in the NFL. Like, I'm a Trey Burton fan, don't get me wrong, but... Sitting here and trying to fool yourself into thinking that any like able-bodied human is just going to be able to do what Jordan Matthews could do is, is ridiculous. Like he, he <laughs> Trey Burton is not a better better wide receiver than Jordan Matthews. I it don't know like how else to more they, clearly state that. It is worth pointing out they are the same size. They're both six three. Um, I think Trey Burton. I might be wrong about this. I'm pretty sure that he had played some wide receiver in college, but. Yeah, I mean, he is a tight end. They're, they don't necessarily. He's a tight end. Like this isn't a discussion. Like we could sit here and like look at like he's just not. He's not a wide receiver. It'd be like me saying, "Well, like tell me something that uh, you know, I don't know. Tell me something that I don't even know. Like Rishwan Holmes uh, could do that. That Joel Joel and B could do that. Rishwan Holmes can't. Well, they could both dunk. They could both potentially shoot. Like it's just a stupid argument. Rishwan does have some really interesting hairstyles. I haven't seen Joel rock some of those. Yeah. Okay, but the the point like this is the level some Eagles folks have have gone to to basically be like Matthews was the most replaceable player ever. Again, I'm not calling Matthews great, but I think he's a he's a pretty good receiver and he's had success on a team where he's been their only legitimate wideout, like their o- or their only legitimate receiver with a bad quarterback with a rookie quarterback, and now you were going to put him in a situation where 
he was going to be like the second or third option. And he was never going to have to go against the top corner. And he was going to get to the, the he usually did play in the slot, but the, the idea of him ever being on the outside would have been gone. And you would have had like, if you're going to roll safety help over on Alshon Jeffrey, you open up a lot of space for Matthews. And it just makes the team better. And it makes Ertz better because now in the middle of the field, you have a legitimate slot receiver. Um, All right. You know, so we, it, we, it takes some focus off of Ertz. I think when you put Aguilar there, not only is your slot position worse, but I think it also impacts your other outside receiver because now you have both Torrey Smith and Aguilar potentially on the field, both guys who are huge question marks, and I think it impacts Zach Ertz. Um, so, like, there's a there's a ripple effect out from just re- removing a guy from a situation. It's not just his position in football and in other sports, too. It impacts the guys around him. So This has come up again, before. I think the— I think the bigger thing that impacts how effective Zach Ertz is going to be is whether or not Brent Selleck can block or not, or if he's past that point in his career. Because if Brent Selleck can't block, and that then no longer frees up Ertz to be this this receiving tight end, it's going to be an issue. And unless they're going to try to put in, like, Trey Burton to become your new, like, blocking tight end, I don't exactly know how things are going to work out for Ertz. Ertz is, is notoriously an awful blocker, so... I think those kind of positional issues and not having somebody who can actually, you know, be the blocking tight end at this point, if Selleck, you know, continues to prove that he's falling off in that regard or that Jason Peters is getting overwhelmed to tackle, um, I think those things have a bigger impact on on Ertz. It's come up before. Um, Coaches, I think, have have said it in the past week. I think we even brought it up the other day that it looks like they're going to do the slot more slot by by committee. And that's fine. Like, if you're going to put Pumphrey in the slot, you're going to put Sproles in the slot, um... I'm trying to think, maybe it was, it might have been Adam the other day who was going down the list of 10 people, and then when I went back and listened to it, I felt like I was reading a Dr. Seuss book. It's like, oh, he can go in the slot, or this can go in the slot. How many slots would you like to slot? Um, <laughs> 610, 622. So, um, all right, I think that's enough about Jordan Matthews. Uh, yeah. May he may he rest in peace. He's, uh, I guess, week to week now with a, a chipped, chipped bone in his sternum or something like that. Poor guy. I do want to point out, though, the other, the other day somebody tweeted at, at I think both of us and said that we really brought down the conversation about Jordan Matthews and uh, um, God, what's his name? Ronald Darby. Yeah. Darby. I wanted to call him Barney. I don't know why Um, that, that we had like kind of dragged down the the mood around the Darby trade. Just want to say I was initially disappointed because I liked Jordan Matthews as a, as a guy in the locker room and I thought he was a pretty decent receiver, but I think Darby is a, is a, a player that definitely fits a need, you know, a, a ton more, and is going to ultimately prove if he plays well to be a more important player on this team, being a successful team going forward. Let's just to yeah, I, just to clear the air. I think I think you're probably in that same camp too. It's just you don't want to gloss over the fact that Matthews was like he was a he was a good receiver. He wasn't perfect. He was a good slot receiver, and and he'll probably find some success in Buffalo. I think the the bigger issue. Um, and maybe something that I guess could draw. Yeah, I think we're running counter programming to your point. It's not that like I, Ronald Darby, no one is, is really kind of, we're not questioning Ronald Darby. Um, I, he's the perfect sort of guy for the Eagles to obtain. I think I am just a little bit miffed at the um, like overwhelmingly positive. You can't even discuss the negative part of the discussion at least amongst the hardcore eagles people and that always gets my backup and i feel like we need to address the other side and the fact that like hey guys like 
just because it looks good, like there is another side to this, and let's talk about it. it comes back and, to my Colfish so Eagles we, point. Yeah, it does. So I think that's the reason we're spending so much time on the downside, just because you, you're getting the upside everywhere else, and we're just trying to explore the other side. The only issue that I have on the Darby side of things um, was the Peter King article uh, that came out, I guess, after we recorded that talked about how the – you know, initially people had said that it was strange that that Darby was let go by Sean McDermott because he's so good with cornerbacks, and then it came out that apparently he hadn't bought into McDermott and I guess the the uh, the GM's vision or their plan or the system or whatever, and that's what made him ultimately expendable. Um, I don't know. I I don't know how that carries over to another team. Like you have to think that once you get traded to another team, like you you just kind of have to buy in. Like if that if that's the ultimate reason that Buffalo got rid of of him as a good young cornerback, then I guess that's fine. And I guess, you know, it comes back to something we said the other day. Like if Sean McDermott really thought that he was going to be able to take some other guys, some other younger guys and, and turn them into studs and, and it, it thereby made um, Darby expendable, then, then I guess that's fine. It, it's a little bit of cause for concern, I think. Um, but Jim Schwartz is a good defensive coordinator. It's not like he's being subjected to, uh, to Doug which I guess is good, you know, from, from your vantage point. Yeah. All right. So that brings up, you would put a question in our Slack thing. I thought this, I thought this was pretty good. <laughs> Are any of our coaches actually good coaches? Um, a quick primer for everyone who can't rattle off all four coaches. We got Brett Brown. We got Dave Hackstall. We got Pete McCannon and we got Doug Peterson. We got Jim. So Curtin. let's, I'm just, just kidding. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with Brett Brown. Um, this is this is probably the the I don't know if the biggest question mark, but this topic has been talked about now for a few years. It's it's and we don't have to spend a lot of time on each of these guys. Brett Brown is is impossible to judge by all accounts. The league, everyone in the league, it seems, thinks very highly of him. Incoming players, clearly, JJ Redick mentioned it that at midnight when he went to visit the Sixers, they're running they're they're running sets in street clothes. Um, by all accounts, he seems like a really good guy. Like, I had him on the podcast a couple of years ago. I think we're going to try and get someone like him uh, again this year. Uh, super good guy. Super and smart guy. Well-liked in league circles. He's had nothing to work with. And he has had some success, especially last year and the year before even, with some of the young talent really developing them and occasionally putting a quality product on the floor. The when Joel and B played notwithstanding because they were more than a quality product at that point. Um, we've I've chronicled a few of his late game scenarios. Um, you can blame a lot of that on young and inexperienced and quite frankly terrible talent. However, there have been a few situations where he has called a timeout only to draw up the most god awful set that didn't even result in a shot. Um, so there's like definitely question marks. What are your thoughts on on Brett Brown? So let's give let's give numbers quick. So in his four year coaching career, his teams have gone seventy five and two fifty three, which is good for a just under twenty three win percentage. Um, super misleading. Which is super misleading. Well, I I know, but that's that's why we look at numbers and then we kind of talk about how numbers aren't aren't always indicative of the job somebody's doing. So from my vantage point, Brett Brown, I think has the the most positive. Um, view league-wide out of any of the four coaches, or five if you include the Union. Um, Easily. He, he is a guy that has now gone out, and you can make the case if you want to that J.J. Redick only came here because of money and on a one-year deal, but 
I don't think that you sign a big money deal if you don't at least in some way, shape, or form believe in the, the coach or the players that you're going to play with. And there have been star players from from across the league that after they've played against Philly the last few years, like teams that have had Vander Blue and Hollis Thompson, that they've said, you know, these guys, you know, they talent-wise, they don't have enough, but they play hard. They, they never quit on Brett. And this is, I think, going to be something that as we look at these other coaches, like the this is one, I think, criticism that, that has pretty much come out across the board on all of the other coaches. Have they lost the locker room? Have their teams given up in games? Having watched practically every game over this last four-year stretch of, of pain, misery, and process, um, I think the amount of times that you could say that the team has quit on Brett Brown is less than a handful. If anything, it's been like a player who seems to have given up, and then they're on the bench the next game, and then they're kind of back in and buying back into the program. Brett is a, a fantastic motivator. You think about when you're working at your job and your boss gets you down or something at work gets you down, you think of how negative you go immediately. You think of the, the way that you sulk at your cubicle or you sulk at your desk or whatever it is that you do. Brett Brown does this job with a smile on his face. There have been times that I've wondered if he's actually mentally unstable for, for how how good of a persona he still continues to put out public, publicly. He goes into post-game press conferences on, on teams that have won 10 games, 18 games, 19 games, 28, and he can find the positive in, in the development of what, what guys have done. Um, All right, let, let's Coving, move like on The Covingtons Brett, of the world, like... I'm just saying, like the Covingtons of the world who, who were found on a scrap heap that, that Hinky, you know kicked himself for missing out on, Covington has legitimately become a guy who's gotten Defensive Player of the Year um, votes. And and that, I think, has a lot to do with Brett Brown. So of all the coaches in the city, I think Brett is the best, even though his winning percentage is the worst. Yeah, okay. Uh, he's certainly one of the the least we have to... He's the least of, of a worry or question mark that we have around here. Um, let's go through these quickly. Dave Haxtell. Uh, I, th- let's <laughs> I go, think the jury's let's really... Let's do numbers. Numbers really quick. Dave Haxtell in college, the reason that people thought of him highly, he was 143 and 43 in, uh, in college with uh, North Dakota. They won, I think, multiple NCAA championships. With the Flyers, his teams have gone, this says 80 and 70. This is, this is wrong. I need to find the actual, uh, the actual stats. Oh, 80, 60, and 24. So he's got like a 56% winning percentage. Uh, no, that's wrong. Sorry, that's points. That's 56% uh, point percentage. Uh, I'll find something more specific. Okay, all right. This, Sorry, let's, yeah, that was bad. Let's talk about him as, as an actual coach. Um, like, I, 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 this is probably the year that he really he has to make the playoffs and potentially win a round this year, I think, to keep his job. Um, the, his handling of the young players, his his love of McDonald and Bellamar and uh, Vandevelde is odd. Um, I, I am troubled mostly by the fact that they regressed in year two under him. Like they played so well in the second half of his first season where you're like, Hey, okay, now it's coming together. And to take a step backward from that, I know there were other mitigating circumstances to really take a huge step backwards though. To me, that's concerning. And you get the sense that, um, he lost, it certainly irked some young players on the team and potentially, lost a few others that that's not a great sign for a guy in his second year uh especially if he doesn't have the track record i mean it, it 
it feels very Chip Kelly-ish. I don't think that's an unreasonable analogy. I know that McDonald makes a ton of money against your cap, but there is no excuse to have Andrew McDonald as a as a top two defensive pairing on this team. And the worst part is that he continued to double down throughout the season about how he thought that McDonald was, you know, a, a top pair quality uh, defender in the NHL, which is nonsense. Um, you've got a bunch of young guys like Moran and, and Haig that are, are kind of working their way up in Sanheim that are working their way up through the minors and at some point are going to kind of, you know, bust through the floor and they're going to come into the league. And if Andrew McDonald is still standing in their way at a starting spot when, when you have young dynamic defenders coming up, um, that I think will further speak to, you know, the, this narrative behind him. Um, you know, does he actually know what he's doing? Luckily, just by virtue of the expansion draft, they lost Belmar, which is awesome. Um, and I think Vanderbilt uh, was never re-signed. The ghost benching, I think, is, is maybe one of the worst things that we've seen in, in recent memory. Um to draw a direct parallel it's like having a uh, a guy who finishes second in rookie of the year as a defender and then you sit him for the entire year that's what the union have done this year see this is why i'm saying these teams all do the same thing it, it's so it, it's what makes it frustrating if you like more than one or two of these philly teams they all eventually run parallel to each other pete mccannon um i don't think he's long for this town um Again, like Brett Brown, he hasn't had much to work with, but I think he was overblown in his uh, in his role when it was like he he was Ryan Sam Ryan Sandberg will potentially go down as the worst manager in Philly sports history and flaked out on the team. Like he was just a dumb guy who I don't know if that's who just fair. Made, he just wasn't. A, uh, he I was, think that's fair. I don't think he's a dumb I think guy. I don't think he was. I a, think he I don't is. think he was a good way. He I don't think he had a good. Uh, good bedside manner with his players i think that's ultimately what doomed him i think if he i don't think he gave a shit and nothing look i here's here's my dumb guy ometer i'm not willing to say that anyone isn't a dumb guy until they could show me once in public or whatever that they have any sort of like intellect or basic logic and this is the way i feel about doug peterson too every time Sandberg opened his mouth. You're like, I don't think this guy understands what's going on. And there's, you can't show me any evidence to the contrary. So that for that reason alone, I will declare him a dumb guy. I think he was at very least a dumb coach who flaked out on the team. And in comparison, McCannon, who was here during the manual years, looked a bit like a genius. For, and the team played well for him at times after after Sandberg left. And you're like, oh, hey. You know, maybe McCannon's pressing the right buttons, but then you see some of the decisions he makes with where he's putting players on the field, his handling of the pitchers in the bullpen and the lineup and young players regressing. Uh, I don't think there's anything, anything remotely in the positive side about Pete McCannon other than he seems like a nice guy who the players, I guess, like, but yeah, I don't even know if that's true. That's he keeps fighting too. with Oduble and those guys. In, in McCannon's... Uh tenure here as the Phillies manager he's gone 151 and 215 uh overall as a as a manager he's he's been a manager five years I think that includes his interim time with Pittsburgh uh his time with Cincinnati and and you know his third year as the Phillies manager he's got a win percentage of 43 percent so I think if if nothing else like maybe he's decent at kind of uh guiding teams through that interim phase but this is the first job that he had that was multiple years and I, I think it's pretty safe to say that the, the team hasn't really benefited by by uh, his presence. 
also like decisions that he's made like you were just talking about positional issues um so they they call up uh reese hoskins right he hits three home runs in two nights which is awesome but he's playing left field when he's really a first baseman because a guy who hasn't gotten better under pete mccann and tommy joseph is now blocking him at first base like these are these are issues that we have nick williams played center i don't field. think you really blame the manager for that though. Sure you like, can. the manager's the one who makes joseph. the lineup yeah, but I mean, you have to play Tommy Joseph. Why? He's still one of because they, they don't have that. Many, at least Tommy Joseph is an able body. They don't have a whole lot of able bodies on this team. You have to have. You can't just like you can't platoon those guys at first base. Like you're, there's not enough talent on this team for you to be like, yeah, Tommy Joseph could just sit the bench and play every sixth day. I, I don't you're, blame. You're McCann. also I don't in a no lose really situation to, to say, you know what, Tommy, like. We're going to try you over at third base because Michael Franco is playing like such garbage this year. That, that can... is ridiculous. Why is it ridiculous, Kyle? He's got an on-base percentage. You know, like we got all upset the other day about Michael Franco having a low on-base percentage. I'm not talking Tommy, about... Tommy freaking Joseph has an on-base percentage of 297 for the year. Are you going to tell me that he's worth he's worth having play starting at first base over Reese Hoskins? You can at least play a month out. You know what Tommy Joseph is at this point in his career. Two years in... The highest OBP he's had is 308. That was last year. His batting average overall in two years is 249. He struck out 176 times. He's only walked 53. I've seen enough of Tommy Joseph right now to know that he is not a cornerstone piece of this team going forward. I'm confident in the fact that Tommy Joseph might have been a good prospect when he was playing catcher. And then he had injuries that derailed it and he got pushed to first base. But but this idea that he has to be this guy who's locked in like he's an in his prime Ryan Howard is is nonsense. It's not like no, it's not like Jim Tomey blocking Ryan Howard where you had a legitimate guy who could slug at first base. Tommy Joseph might be might have been a really good prospect at the time that he was acquired, but he has proven over 2 years that he is nothing more than a guy who hits around 240 and gets on base at like a, an under 30% clip. That's all I'm saying. Okay. Yeah, look, I I agree with you. I'm not the biggest Tommy Joseph fan. I I don't think he's there's anything special about him. If and I know this is cherry picking, but if you take out his first month, his May, June, and July were actually his OPS was nine seventy three in May, seven thirty one in June, and eight twenty in July. Uh, he hit his on base percentage was was uh, three thirty in July, uh, three oh four in June, not so great. Three seventy three in May, he had a pretty he had a really good May. Uh, in that in those three months, he's hit fifteen home runs. I mean, so he's not like. My point is, look, I'm not a Tommy Joseph guy. I'm not a big fan, but putting him at third base is ridiculous. He he's not he can't play third base at the major league level. Then you put him at he put is, him out in left field. Like if you're gonna do that with Reese, but, but, if you're gonna do stop it, with Reese, it. These are what but, uh, uh, Russ. Like this is honestly like this is such a this is a dumb take. And here I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why I think this is a dumb take. If the Phillies aren't winning anything this year. Tommy Joseph is still only 25 years old. Like, let's not forget that. They're, like, I, Chase Utley wasn't contributing in the majors in a significant way until he was 26. I'm not saying he's going to be Chase Utley. But 25 is very young for a baseball player. Joseph just happens to look like he's 42. But if you, you, can't, you can't just sit him because he does still have some potential. And if not, he's someone you're going to want to trade. So you have to build up, like, some sort of a book on him. And if he's sitting on your bench, that's going to be impossible to do. So both Hoskins and Joseph should be in the lineup because if for no other reason, then they're among the top five hitters on the team. 
you can't put you can't put either of those guys at third base. Third base is a difficult position. So Fra- Fra- I, Franco sucks. Like he just sucks right now. But just because he sucks, he can't just go throwing anyone in his position. It's going to be a clown show out there. So you say, okay, what's the easiest position on the field to play? Probably left field, maybe right field if the guy has an arm. So who do you put out there? Well, we could put Tommy Joseph out there and put Hoskins at first. But Joseph is, but or. We could put Hoskins out there because he's more athletic than Joseph and Kid is more serviceable. So you have to, like, I know he's out of position a little bit, but that's where you got to play him. Like, if he's going to be a first baseman in the future, first base is not a difficult position. That is not a difficult position to move to and pick up. That's why guys late in their career go to first. That's why Darren Dalton was a first baseman late in his career. You can, pretty much anyone can pick up and play first. So just get the guy in the lineup. If you have to stick him in left field, then do it. So I'm not ready to hold that against McCannon because you have to, you can't sit Tommy Joseph if for no other reason than sadly he's one of your better hitters, arguably, and he really can't play anywhere else. I, I don't think that is unreasonable. I don't think, like, I, I think this is all just like a silly, a silly point that we went way off the rails on. I do not. Well, no, we're I talking not, about McCannon. I just think that's I, well, then, a bad example. To, so let's circle to back around. Bash McCannon. Over. Let's circle back around to what McCannon did did choose to do. So Hoskins, right, first baseman until last week. This comes right from Matt Gelb. Um, started his fifth game in left field after being a first baseman his entire career. Nick Williams, who's typically a corner outfielder, played center for the first time in his big league career. And Hunsu Kim has only had He's been had, big leagues for had, two weeks. Had only played. Uh, right field for two innings in his career. He's 29. He's only played right field two innings. He's in right field. This It's like a Frankenstein defensive lineup that ended up costing them multiple runs in the first inning because Reese Hoskins doesn't know how to play left field. A double goes over his head and a couple runs score. That puts you behind early in a game because you're playing guys out of position. That's the issue but that it, I have. But I'm going to defend McCann just one they more. They did it with Darren Ruff, too. Darren Ruff wasn't a good player, but they they started Darren Ruff by bringing him up and having him try to learn the outfield. Like at at some point, if you're the Phillies, if you're and if if you're looking at this, you know, top down, if you have young prospects who look like they're going to be blocked, then in the minor leagues, you better start teaching them how to play other positions. It's the same thing that you do when you're coaching in like middle school or high school. You start looking at what a depth chart looks like, and when they're going to get up to the top level, where is there a glut of 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 players? And where do you start teaching other, you know, people to, to start players to start learning other positions? The Phillies don't do it. They, they, they're doing the same thing. Like we talked about this with J.P. Crawford. Like they, they have multiple guys in the minors who are currently going to be blocked by maybe maybe slightly better than, than average players. And they're not teaching them new positions in the minors. That's where they should be getting the seasoning. This is where Reese Hoskins, if he's going to be blocked at first and you're a big believer in Tommy Joseph, who, by the way, they tried to trade and nobody wanted, if they're going to try to make Reese Hoskins a major leaguer by the end of the season, then they should have been doing it in the minors. They should have had him starting in left field. That that's the issue that I have, and it, it, like okay. maybe that's not but just McCannon. Two things. It might not just be a McCannon thing. That's an yes. organizational thing. But McCannon is, is the guy who creates the lineup. He's the guy who picks the positions the players play in. He's not totally. I get it. That's just a convenient here. way. I get it, but that's a convenient way to just attach that to McCannon. And I, I mean, we're going down a, a Phil's rabbit hole, but I, I would say that part of this is I get the sense Clentac has, he has the, the hinky gene in that he wants to be smarter than the average bear and can think outside the box. And the only thing I can think for the reasoning is here is like, look, 
let's not worry about position. We don't care about wins and losses this year. Let's not worry about guys playing out of positions. We need to get some of these guys in the lineup and get them at bats, which is most paramount. We can always spring training the following year when we have a more well-rounded team. We can get them in the right positions and get them up to speed. They're not going to like, like in the grand scheme of things, Hoskins playing left field for a couple of months early in his career is not going to stunt his growth really anywhere else. It'll just delay him by a couple of months, which is fine. It doesn't work against the Phillies timetable. That's the only thing I could think. They're like, look, let's get as many, let's just get these guys on the field and in the lineup. And if they have to play out of position for a little while, because we don't have a well-rounded team yet, that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't necessarily hate that tactic. Like, if the ball goes over Hoskins' head and the Phils lose last night, who cares? Like, did he get it in bat and hit his third home run in two games? He did. That, to me, is more important. And if you, if the only way for you to get him in the lineup is putting him in left field, then so be it. That's, that's the only counterpoint to that. But I think we would agree that McCannon is is a little out of his depth. He's out of his depth. Uh, We've one. talked about Doug. I don't even think we have to get into yeah. Doug. We know that I don't we know we that that none of us, including Adam, believe in Doug. There there is at this point we have a one year sample size. I think we are all just kind of sitting back. We're hoping that he does well. We're hoping that the team does well. But at some, my fear but at is, some point my fear is hold on. My fear is that he doesn't we look back upon this era in three or four years, and we're like, man, it, it's going like it's going to feel like the the you know the Nick uh, Nick Levy Levi. I know you're not going to remember. I, I forget how to pronounce his name. Nick Levy, uh, Phillies era back in the early '90s. Uh, it's going to feel like the God insert random ass Sixers coach. Um, the Randy Ayers, the, the Chris Ford, the Randy Ayers era. era. Yes. Um, it's going to feel like the Larry Boa era, although uh, that was that was a little bit different. They there was a little bit of upside late in Larry's run with Rollins. It's and gonna stuff be like the Boa. Craig Berube years. It's going to be it, like yeah, it might be. It it's might gonna be the be, sort of thing. It's where... gonna be like the uh, the Nick Novak, the, the the Peter Novak, the the Jim Curtin, the uh, it's your union stuff. You you realize you lose like seventy percent of the audience when you reference a union thing, right? I don't know if it's seventy percent. There's like thirty percent of people who are like yes, yes, Jim Curtin, and then the other seventy percent are like, who the hell is Jim Curtin? Um, I'm teasing you. I know. Um, I do feel like though we're gonna look back on this and be like, like God, what were we thinking? Like the, we were we were duped again by Howie. We had the like if you would have said bef- two years ago when the Eagles fired Chip, like, hey, what is the one guy everyone could agree would be like the most Eagles thing to do? Everybody the most said flyery it. thing said Doug. to. To do, right, like go back and get the uh, the understudy who the inexperienced understudy, the guy you used to love. So, like in, until we see anything else from from both Roseman and Peterson, I'm just I'm really I'm excited about football. I'm excited to watch Carson Wentz develop, but I'm just like it's really hard for me to be upbeat about the that's about the Eagles right now because I don't trust the guys in charge, not even a little bit. That's the number one thing that I worry about is in these develop, developmental years of Carson Wentz's career, is Doug the guy to develop Carson? Not to win games, but is he the guy to develop Carson? If the answer is yes, and the team has a, a middling record for a year or two, but Carson is getting better, then I'm fine. I'd rather that than the Eagles luck their way into having like a 10-6 and six record with defense, but Carson isn't developing, if that makes sense. The only, yeah, the only bright spot is 
is if if anything, Doug Peterson is a quarterback guy, and he's been yep. around some. He's from Brett Favre to Donovan McNabb. Like, I, I'm not so much worried about his technicals because I think if there's if there is one coach, and I don't know how much time Doug actually is spending coaching the quarterbacks because he has the whole team to worry about. But I worry less about that than the product on the field. And not to say that guys can't be on bad teams and and come forward, but. If you're putting Carson Wentz, I'm just not convinced Carson Wentz during his first three years in the league is going to be in, is going to play for better than an eight and eight or nine and seven team. And, you know, that's, it's not a great way to start your career. Not, not saying they're not the worst, they're not going to be the worst team in the league, but putting him in Doug Peterson's offense, if it's anything like it was last year, granted they didn't have weapons and you're throwing horizontal more than you're throwing down the field. Like that, that's not, you're no quarterback wants to be in that offense and that, that worries me a little. We'll have to see. Definitely. Uh, real quick, before we go, um, let's hit some iTunes reviews. Um, there were a few. I'm going to fly through them. I've, I've got them pulled up. I don't know if you have any of them pulled up. Um, Pirates, 90, uh, Pirates 94 is the, the comment. Uh, former radio sports listener is the name. I hate you guys. You have made it impossible to listen to sports talk radio anymore. When I listen now, all I hear are the cliches you point out. The pod gets better every episode. Thank you. Uh, Tailored Stars says, great show. Five-star review. Listened to WIP for so long and wanted to rip my hair out every time I hear Carlin and Reese speak and give their moronic opinions. This show helps me get through my work days. Keep up the good work. I also wanted to take this opportunity to ask you, and you will be adding some intro-outro music like Sims and Lefko, brought to you by Bleacher Report. I guess we're supposed to take two sips of our orange juice. Um, it just gives off a great vibe. we read these. Did we read these? Way. I don't know if we I don't did. know. Maybe off the show. Maybe. I forget. No, we read them off, off the show. I read, I read them okay. after. Yeah, yeah. Um, Poseidon three three twelve says six one zero six three two zero nine as his uh, subject line. This one's long. Hey guys, long time listener, first time caller here. I actually provided a five star review a couple of months ago, but I figured I would provide a written review to go along with it. I've listened to this podcast from day one. In fact, the start of your podcast actually coincided with some time off from work, and I was able to follow along and listen as the initial or to the initial pods as they were being released. As a longtime listener of Sports Talk Radio in Philly, I initially was drawn in because of the fresh, realistic takes on the Philly sports landscape. What I've been pleasantly surprised with has been the talk uh, regarding media advertising, national sports stories, hating on Buffalo Wild Wings and Applebee's, and the plethora of other non-Philly sports topics that the hosts occasionally get into. I do think the dynamic between all three hosts has gotten better. Adam is top-notch as the host. You can tell he's done this before, even though he knows, or and it's obvious that he knows how to analyze sports. Kyle is good because he gets a lot of insight from running crossing broad. Even though Russ occasionally talks about things we don't care about, cough, the union cough. See, Kyle, when somebody says that, that means they actually do care. I still find them likable because he doesn't get all technical with his terminology. The beauty is he doesn't claim to know everything, but he's so reasonable, unlike callers on Philly Sports Talk Radio. The podcast rocks. And in case you were wondering, yes, I am the one listener that sticks with the podcast until the very end, each and every time. Cheers, boys. We've got two more, and then we'll be done. Um, my new f- uh, favorite broadcast <clears throat> uh, by Joey Mac 41 Hey, guys, love the podcast. Haven't missed one yet. Question for you. Do you think the Phillies are going to honor Darren Dalton with a patch on their jersey? After all, we had to look at the SLB and CB patches during the full the full Philly seasons for owners that we've never knew or heard of. Seems like the right thing to do. Keep up good work. I think they should. If they don't this year, they should do it next year. Uh, am I mistaken in that they did for the alumni weekend? I'm not sure. Honestly, I don't know. We'll have to look. I yeah, do, I don't either. Do a post. I suspect do a, they do won't. a clarification post after this. Uh, I suspect that they won't. To answer that question, I think the owners 
And I, you know, I don't know. They Tug McGraw got one though. I, I that's a weird situation. Yeah. I, I'm. I will be on record as not being a patch on the jersey guy. Like Ed Snyder, yes. Like certain certain guys who are you know the the owner of the team or there are certain luminaries like that. I'm not because it becomes a where do you draw the line thing. Yeah. And you you wind up when the Phillies got 50 owners and they're all in their 70s, then you wind up having a patch every year like the Phillies did. I mean, the Phillies during that whole run, and this is this is like the biggest like little like niggle complaint about anything ever. But I think of the five years they went on their their run in their playoff run from 2007-2011, I think four of those years they had some sort of like hideous patch on the jersey. And I'm just not I think it's a bit much. Like I think you just you just you can honor guys in other ways. All right, so you're a hater. Uh, 162 uh, games with a black armband is is a bit much for me. All right, last one. Keep being awesome. Five stars by Bleeding Green and NYC. Oh, I guess Adam wrote a uh, a review. That's nice of him. Uh, hands down, the best podcast dedicated to Philly sports scene. Wish I had found this sooner. The main drawback drawback is it's not a five day a week show. Way to have full time jobs and and lives, you guys. Uh, I could also do with a little less hot take on the hot take from Sports Talk Radio. Unless you guys do, do your own daily show for four hours a day, it's a bit hypocritical. Hey, shut up, Bleeding Green. You stop. You stop right now. Don't get me wrong. I'm so grateful to have you guys instead of the Sports Radio Direct we have usually have in Philly. And, he just and criticized I, us I, yep, for exactly. talking about it. And yeah, Adam totally sounds like a 50-year-old divorcee. Uh, maybe you <laughs> should try to go vegetarian for a month. I wouldn't know because you guys never talk about it. Keep up the great work, guys. P.S. Shout out to Sims and Lefko Drink. And on that bombshell, I think it's time to end, Kyle. Uh, I have to run to the yeah. doctor. I am already late. We are recording late. Uh, let's... Wait, you're late, so you're going to the doctor? Yeah, see, see Kyle, I, uh, I, you know, I'm committed. I'm committed. You pregnant? No. You missed my joke. This you said what? I'm running late. I'm oh, running oh, look at you. Yeah. Look at you. Yeah. This guy's got jokes. By the way, ladies Stork, and gentlemen, Stork came for us. Nobody, uh, no, please no. Uh, nobody knew this, I'm sure, but uh, yesterday was Kyle's birthday, so please hit him up at Crossing Broad. Give him some birthday wishes. Drop some gifts. Uh, be nice to him for a day. If you're in the comments section on CrossingBroad.com, please be sure to uh, to leave him a nice comment and birthday wishes. Thank you. Um. All right, yeah, we will. Um, so we'll be. We'll so be back uh, just a reminder, we'll be taking next week off. We will be doing a show on Friday after the Eagles game Thursday night, so that'll be a good spot to break. And this will be, I think, the first time we've missed one or two shows here and there. But this will be the first time we'll we'll do a full week off, which I think is good. We need a reset. Uh, none of us have. We're, we're you know we tend to be up somewhere around five thirty and five forty five to do this three times a week. So I think for all of us we'll, we'll catch up on a little bit of sleep. So we're ready to go. No, nope, I'm going season. back to work next week. So uh, well, ah, that sucks. Yep. No, that's I like my job, That's but, even better. But yeah, so I'll be you up, could I'll ease be up into it. Early. Yeah, that'd be great without the podcast. Um, so we'll see. And everybody then as far Friday. as the five, as far as the five days a week thing, I don't. I, I we all got to sit down and discuss that. We would like to go five days a week. Um, Doing this at 6 a.m. three days a week is, is is difficult when we all go and do other things for the rest of the day. Like the sports talk radio morning guys, that is their job. You know, they're done at 10 a.m. They're done. Their day is over, and they can go do what they want to do. Uh, all of us, you know, I, I run the website all day. Adam goes to work all day. Russ teaches all day. So uh, we, we're certainly sticking with three days, and, and I guess five days is up in the air. But we will be off next week, um, and we will see you on Friday after the Eagles game.